Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And you can find out more about us, check out our short courses and our degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined in the studio today by Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. I'm great. And it's good to be back. I've been in pod withdrawal of late. I haven't been around much. So. Uh, well, we've been in w- withdrawal for not having you in the studio as well. So it's oh, fantastic to have you here. <laughs> Sharon, for those of you who don't know, is a professor here at Crawford School. She is the ANU lead on the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. And she's also the editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. So at the beginning of each week's pod, we go over, you know, some issues that have caught our eye in the news over the last week. So tell me, Sharon, what has caught your eye? Well, there's been a lot going on, of course, and lots of discussion in Australia about the um, the post-election situation um, and what that means. But what's caught my eye has been uh, to our neighbours across the across the ditches, they say. Um, so New Zealand's wellbeing budget, I think, is really interesting. Um, it's been greeted with both enthusiasm and scepticism in New Zealand and beyond. You know, the, the sceptics wonder what this is all about, and it's a radical shift away from thinking about um, GDP as the, the primary measure um, of how well a country's doing and of taking a what might be a narrower economic approach towards a budget. But Jacinta Ahern, again, has is sort of leading global debates by saying that the focus in New Zealand is to be on people's well-being and they're focusing on GDP or increasing income alone um, for individuals is is not the way to achieve overall well-being and, um, and public health in the country. So I think this is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out and whether this is indeed a model for other countries. Bhutan has had its gross national happiness index, but I think you could perhaps question how far that's gone in terms of really shifting policy in the country, although it's been important. Um, maybe this wellbeing budget is you know, quite a different way of thinking about pol- policy. Um, and the thing that's been of, of particular interest to me is the way in which it's focused on childhood poverty. And child poverty in New Zealand, like in Australia, is at very high levels, a very deep concern. And so this wellbeing budget is really closely follow, focused on trying to address the problems of childhood poverty. Um, so I'm watching it with great interest and I'm going to be in Wellington next week. So I'm very excited about talking to people there and hearing more about it. So I, I've heard a lot about this as well, but what does it actually mean in practice to hand down a budget which is focused on well-being? 
Well, I'll be in a better position to talk about that next week after I've been to um, to talk to people in Wellington. But I think one of the key issues is the way in which we use indicators to measure progress. And my understanding is that the wellbeing budget in um, in New Zealand is really focused around addressing a series of wellbeing indicators that were adopted earlier this year. Um, And so it's really about shifting the focus in terms of what we prioritise and what we try to do. So I I think maybe in some ways, I think back to the the Rudd, Gillard Rudd years um, and the establishment of a social inclusion unit um, and a social inclusion index and an effort in Australia to try to think about what it really matters for people to be connected um, and to have a sense of well-being within their communities. And that's what that social inclusion approach was about. And I think in some ways, perhaps a well-being approach is is not mirroring that, but is more that kind of approach where what you are really most concerned about is not economic growth, although that's important, um, but it's about how you enhance people's well-being, how you connect people, how you ensure that social inclusion is is, is occurring. Um, and that doesn't mean, as I certainly as I understand it, that economic growth is not a focus. It means that economic growth becomes a means to an end, and that end is the well-being of people and particular concern about those who are being left behind, those who are most most marginalised. And I guess we've we've had Reconciliation Week, we've had Surrey Day in Australia recently, and maybe there's something for us to learn in terms of thinking about wellbeing and Indigenous policy. And Martin, you'd remember that great discussion we had with PDU some months ago, and he was talking about Indigenous concepts of wellbeing and how different that is from what we might call mainstream or, or, or wide approaches to wellbeing. So I think there's there's a lot for us to learn, both from New Zealand, but also some of those those concepts of well-being in Indigenous Australia. So I think it's a, a really fascinating initiative for us to keep our eye on. I think, look, I think it's really interesting as well. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because, you know, you could argue, I think, that economic growth is Easily measurable, however faulty it may be, as a measure of you know of a, a country's success, it's easy easily measurable. Something like well-being, surely that's much more nebulous. That's much more hard to get a handle on whether you've actually succeeded, particularly when you're handing down a budget which is based on it. Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking to someone who spent the last decade trying to develop an incredibly complex, gender-sensitive measure of multidimensional poverty. And yes, it would be much easier to measure income. It would be much easier to measure economic growth. But I think at the heart of this is that we, we measure what we think matters and what we measure determines what we think matters. And I wouldn't argue, argue for a moment that economic growth isn't important, and we should measure it. But we also need to measure other things. And it's it's a difficult thing to do, it's a complicated thing to do, but it's certainly not impossible. And there are a range of well-being um, measures that are already in existence. Um, and much of those well-being measures also already have data around them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it is that the um, the New Zealanders are planning to to measure, but for example, I would argue that one measure of well-being it is time burdens, and this is particularly an important issue for women, but also for men in terms of the time you spend at work and the time you're able to spend in the community with your family doing other things. We already have those data. 
you know, those data are there um, and collected through census data and other surveys. So it's a matter of deciding what it is that matters and what the indicators are associated with them. Um, and often, particularly if the data's already there, it's not as difficult as we might think. But I think the other thing that I'd add to that is one of the things that really disturbed me during the Australian election campaign was the way in which Prime Minister Morrison continually referred to the fact that we live in an economy. And I would argue we actually don't live in an economy. Um, we live in a society and economic growth is a tool to improve that society. Um, but it's not all about the economy. So there you go, listeners. You've heard what we think of that issue in New Zealand. But we're really interested to hear your thoughts on how effective you think it is, whether you think it's a good idea, how measurable it is, and and whether it might actually lead to lasting change. And the way to let us know your thoughts is, as always, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, um, on email, where we're podcast at policyforum.net, or the best option, jump onto Facebook and join our Facebook group. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. And in fact, if you jump onto the Facebook group, you can not only let us know your thoughts, you can join in some really stimulating and engaging discussions that are going on there. It's a very active group indeed, and I love reading uh, people's thoughts and comments on there. So you can join in there, and you can also make suggestions for future podcasts. And if you make suggestions for future podcasts, which we subsequently turn into an episode of Policy Forum Pod, you could win one of our exclusive, very short run, get your hands on it before they're gone, Policy Forum Pod mugs. You've got one of these, haven't you, Sharon? I have. It's a fantastic thing to own. I love it. Takes pride of place on your desk. <laughs> oh, no absolutely. Doubt. Goes everywhere with you. It does. Goes to class. It will be with you in New Zealand. I think it should be. I think yes. it should be, yes. A measure of your well-being. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so if you want to get your hands on the one of those mugs, you can uh, jump onto the Facebook group and stick with us because in part three, um, we are going to be revealing something about another way that you can get your hands on one of those mugs. We've had a few requests from people, Sharon. I've got to say. People, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm people saying that they really, really want the mugs. And as a consequence, we had an emergency meeting of the Mug Prize Award Committee. We pulled together an emergency session and they have come up with a second method that people can get their hands on one of these mugs. And in part three, I will reveal what that second message is. This is very exciting because I know they're becoming the most sought after item, not just at the ANU, but across Canberra and probably globally. <laughs> the most sought after item. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we'll talk about that in part three. But for now, let's move on and talk about what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, this week is Reconciliation Week in Australia. You mentioned that, Sharon. Um, and the theme of uh, Reconciliation Week this year is Grounded in Truth, Walk Together with Courage. And with the election still on people's minds, today on the pod, we want to shed some light on Australia's Indigenous policies. We want to have a closer look at and reflect on some of Australia's past policies, where we're at today, and how the country can change to better meet its national aspirations of reconciliation. And we've got a fantastic guest, the perfect guest to discuss this topic, haven't we, Sharon? We have. We have Professor Tony Dries to, to talk through these issues. 
Tony brings an enormous wealth of experience on a range of Indigenous policy issues. He was previously Principal Indigenous Research Fellow at the Australian Council for Educational Research. That's a really fantastic research institute that does some fascinating research and Tony's been at the heart of some of that really interesting work. So this is an interview that I'm really looking forward to hearing. He's a really interesting guy and of course he delivered the Reconciliation Week lecture here at ANU last week. I think that's online and we'll leave a link to it in the show notes. It's well worth a listen. So we'll get to that interview in a second, but a quick reminder before we do, do get in contact with us uh, about the podcast. Any questions you've got, any comments, we're really keen to hear them on Twitter where we're at Policy Forum. Email podcast at policyforum.net or jump on that Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Sharon, you're going to duck out for this interview. You're going to leave it in my hopefully capable hands. In your very capable hands, Martin. But but I'll be listening to it afterwards. uh, We will have you back for part three and we'll get your thoughts on it. For now, let's meet our guest. Welcome, Tony. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Tony, last week you delivered the annual Reconciliation Week lecture here at the Australian National University. It was titled, Who is Australia? Public Policy, Imagination and National Identity, Past, Present and Emerging. 2020 will mark both 30 years since the creation of the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation Mm -hmm. and the establishment of the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, which you lead. Can I briefly get you to reflect on the past 30 years of uh, Indigenous policy in Australia? It has been a period of progress. It has been a period of frustration. It has been a period of ups and downs. Um, What do I mean by that? Around the period of which CAPA was established, you had the establishment, as you point out, of the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Uh, Not long after that, we saw the establishment of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And uh, around that period as well, we saw the introduction of the Native Title Act, So one could argue there was progression toward recognition of Aboriginal rights in the form of native title as one form of rights, Uh, the establishment of a reconciliation agenda which sought to facilitate a national conversation about uh, Australia and our relationship with its First Nations people, and of course with the creation of ATSIC, we saw a march toward giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice uh, within national affairs and more specifically, of course, Indigenous policy making. So one could argue that that was a period of where Aboriginal rights and Aboriginal voice um, was, um, um, well, significant inroads were beginning to be made. And then we saw the political contest in terms of the abolition of ATSIC. Um, An independent panel, incidentally, had pointed out that the regional structure of ATSIC was very effective. What we had, of course, in politics, um, I suppose, gobbled up this uh, debate around the leadership of ATSIC, which saw 
both Labor and the Conservative side of politics eventually raced to um, abolish it. So that, I think, led to a period of stagnation and real questioning around the relationship of First Nations people and government. And there was a void that, you know, was kind of patchwork trying to fill that void around an, an advisory committee to the Prime Minister and other mechanisms. Um, but that lack of strength, strong voice then led to a period where I think Indigenous affairs struggled and um, the low point of that is arguably the Northern Territory intervention where Aboriginal voice and control was severely diminished. Um, so you've, you've had a period, as I say, of highs and lows, um, which now brings us, of course, to where we're at now. I want to take a look at the past and present to begin with. Um, from Kevin Rudd's uh, National Apology to the Stolen Generations in 2008 to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, there have been a number of attempts to bring Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians together. Starting with Kevin Rudd's apology, in retrospect, what do you think the apology has achieved? The apology certainly helped shine a light on a very unfortunate chapter of post-colonial Australian history. That is the removal of children um, from their families. If one couldn't think of a more damaging act <laughs> uh, than the removal of children from families. And that, of course, triggered, and we're still seeing it today in 2019, that has led to intergenerational trauma, um, often where Aboriginal people don't know where they're from, don't know who their mob are, and that, of course, leads to identity crisis. It can also lead to unfortunate things such as um, self-harm, etc. And now, of course, we've got children of stolen generations who equally um, on occasion, struggle with identity. Now, there have been support mechanisms established which were attached to Kevin Rudd's national apology um, that have sought to, um, I suppose, try prevent provide a remedy um, to some of those um, practices that which still have a current and a present effect on people. But I think the apology, whilst it was aimed at people from the stolen generation. I think some of the words were so powerful that it spoke to a larger issue of Australia's relationship with its First Nations people. And um, that in itself was significant, equally significant, if not more significant, was Paul Keating's statement uh, and Redfern address where he, as a Prime Minister, I think like, like no one before him and no one since really spoke the truth of post-colonial Australia. We did the stealing. <laughs> we did the killing. And unquestionably, that would have been very confronting for a lot of Australians because 
um, as with any country, Australia would want to be um, always strengthening its sense of patriotism. Um, but of course, the sad history of First Nations affairs has meant that there's always been this diminished aspect of our national identity. And um, the author I can't think of, but uh, Henry Reynolds often quotes him, you know, he talked to uh, that whispering in our hearts. Um, and whilst we are an unreconciled country and whilst we're not giving proper authority and voice to First Nations people, I think we will have that lingering and whispering in our heart and we will be a diminished nation. So beyond the apology, mm -hmm. it's also shifted public perspective. Yes. It, it truth is incredibly important. You'll see that in terms of the Uluru Statement of the Heart and other policy manifestations from First Nations people for many decades now. The absolute importance of truth-telling, um, it's, it's not about guilt. It's not about browbeating. It's being prepared as Australians to tell our children this is what happened in post-colonial Australia. I do want to touch on the Uluru Statement from the Heart. That called for a referendum uh, to embed a representative body in the Constitution, giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples a voice in the Commonwealth Parliament. But why haven't those reforms been implemented yet? There, I think there are a couple of things. Um, there is still, I think, a bit of ambiguity about what this voice is. How How is it structured. Um, what's its relationship to the parliament? Now, it's not, of course, the proposition is not a, a, a another assembly within the parliament. It's a, a voice, an advisory mechanism to the parliament. So clearly there's design work that needs to be done. Now, if we look at the developments in the lead up to our recent federal election, there are a number of significant events. There was, of course, the release of the statement itself by Aboriginal leaders. And as I've said before, I've rarely seen such a coherent, collective uh, articulation of our people's aspirations. And um, that I give great credit to those people through the Referendum Council and others who've gathered all those Aboriginal voices and it culminating in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, of course, what we saw <clears throat> was a, an immediate and, tr and concerning political reaction and response um, by the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. I think he was still national leader, I can't recall, but Barnaby Joyce as well, where they immediately kind of ruled it out without giving it um, proper consideration. Um, so that obviously... Um, took real air out of the tyres in terms of progress. Then on the other side of politics, you had uh, Patrick Dodson and Bill Shorten in opposition um, committing to a referendum within the first term of government should they form it. Now, of course, the federal election um, saw the coalition returned and more recently, um, you've seen interesting announcements, notwithstanding that in the federal budget, the most re recent federal budget, the coalition did commit $7.3 million 
to uh, co-design work with First Nations community on a voice and recognition. So there was quite a deal of political ambiguity because you had then um, the Turnbull government rule it out and then you had the Morrison government make a provision within the federal budget. And more recently, we've seen, of course, Ken White's appointment and there seems to be a shift toward once again um, dialogue with First Nations people about what this voice could look like. Do you think that uh, that money allocated towards the co-design that you talked about there represents significant enough progress for something as important as the Uluru Statement? As I understand it, it is uh, their funds for the design, so not kind of the establishment of or the the management of or operations of, uh, but rather design work, presumably. Uh, most of those funds would be going into some sort of engagement exercise with First Nations people. Now, of course, the concern there, um, and our our people um, are, are fully conscious of how governments can act and um, often tricky issues can be like a can kick down the road. Um, I'm hoping that's not the case. I think the fact that Australia now has its first First Nations person as its Commonwealth Minister for Indigenous Affairs is a good thing. Well, it seems like a good time to talk about that because on Monday we're recording this on Wednesday, but on Monday Ken Wyatt was appointed Minister of Indigenous Affairs. He's an Indigenous man. He's the first Indigenous Indigenous Australian to hold the position and I believe the first Indigenous Cabinet Minister as well. How do you think his appointment will likely impact on uh, policy making in the field of Indigenous affairs? I think a couple of things. Firstly, I think it's a very positive symbol uh, to our children and to our communities and I think Ken's personal achievement and I'm sure with the support of his family as well should be marked in very positive terms. Um, one could argue that it's a shame it took 2019 to get there. It seems to be a long time, uh, 119 years of federation for that to occur. But nonetheless, it shouldn't take away from his personal um, uh, milestone and achievement. Um, it's also a, a positive reflection of his Noongar nation over in Western Australia. So I think on that level... Uh, Ken's appointment um, is, is sends a positive signal. Now, let's go back, however, to the politics, um, putting Ken aside the politics of Indigenous affairs. In order for Ken to be successful, he will need the support of his senior colleagues, most, um, um, most importantly, of course, the Prime Minister, and if we're going to see progress in the areas such as voice recognition, healing, truth-telling, makarata, then um, and, and the other aspects of the Uluru Statement of the Heart, then I think the support of the senior leaders, Prime Minister, Treasurer, and those moderate voices uh, within the Cabinet and caucus are going to be vitally important. On our other podcast, Democracy Sausage, the panel there were speculating about the possibility that having Ken Wyatt in that position might actually lead the conservative side of politics towards creating the kind of constitutional change which um, 
which we've talked about today, um, whereas you know it's normal, it's something normally more associated with the sort of progressive side of politics. Do you hold out much hope that that constitutional change might come as a result of that? There's a couple of lines of thought one could take around this. Um, if we take the glass half empty approach, um, there are those who would argue that it re- would require a progressive side of politics to really drive and give that um, that agenda the kind of oomph and push that it will require. And then if we take the more positive or, if you like, um, optimistic view of the glass half full, um, one could argue that there is. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A stronger chance that the conservative side of government can bring more conservative thinking Australians along that journey with them. You know, I I hope that this isn't a can to be kicked down the road. I I reiterate the importance, I think, of the uh, Prime Minister's leadership um, in working with Ken to bring people together around this agenda and, um, and you know, and ideally, and it seems that Anthony Albanese is signalling bipartisan support. So I think the politics have got to come out of it. What, what needs to come into it is a civil discourse about what is proposed, why it's important, its moral purpose, and then investing in information and awareness campaigns uh, with the broader public. Because at the end of the day, if it were to go to a referendum, it's going to require um, a majority vote and all states and territories um, getting on board. Turning back to that election campaign for a second, I wonder if I could get your thoughts on the quality of the uh, policy put forward by the coalition because uh, maybe I'm being unfair in saying this. I've, I think it's fairly light on the ground. I mean, there was 42 million committed to mental health initiatives. Uh, there was 276 million commi- committed to Indigenous youth education. There was the money committed to the co-design that you uh, that you talked about. Um, but it didn't seem a great deal beyond that. What were your reflections on the uh, on the uh, both the quality and quantity of Indigenous policy proposals put forward? I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been concerned for a long time, and I go back to the first Abbott budget when five hundred million was taken from the portfolio, and that was a real low point because. It, it seemed a strange decision given the levels, persistent uh, locational and intergenerational disadvantage and trauma our people suffer. So probably tr- tr- uh, the Abbott budget um, burns in the mind more than the recent um, <clears throat> uh, Morrison budget. Now, that said, 
given that we've now had 10 years of annual closing the gap reporting, I I don't see that there's a substantial or substantive budgetary allocations that are really going to close gaps. Now, there were measures in the Morrison budget that, um, you know, um, I, I think will be helpful, whether they're sufficient, they'll be helpful. For example, you mentioned mental health. That's a real concern for our young people and our communities. Um, so any allocation toward that area is ideally helpful. But is it proportionate? Do we have budgets in Australia that are proportionate when you see our levels of disadvantage, when we have the annual reports to Parliament that closing the gap um, isn't um, is either marginal or no progress or signs of some progress against um, a couple of indicators. The vast majority, however, um, little to no progress. And of course, there are indicators that aren't in that framework, closing the gap framework, for example, our incarceration rates. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, Aboriginal carcer- incarceration rates have doubled. Any um, one in two of uh, young people in our juvenile justice centres are likely to be an Aboriginal person. So when you see those kind of threats to young people, their well-being and the risk around them, um, I would argue that our budgets are not sufficient enough or proportionate enough to meet our outstanding needs. Now, of course, one of those huge challenges, and in fact, Scott Morrison addressed this during the election campaign, were the very high rates of Indigenous youth suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry George Ardis has written for Policy Forum about this before, about the um, terrible cost of effect it has on Indigenous communities and how uh, Indigenous suicides aren't constrained to adults. You know, they're very, they're quite young people taking their own lives. It's it's a terribly damning thing to, to read about and very sad as well. How do policymakers go about tackling that problem? Um, through, I would suggest a couple of approaches that I don't see sufficient attention to in our public policy making processes. The, the, the first is the idea of whole child development. Now, when we, for example, have a conversation about how First Nations young people are tracking academically, we think, well, that's the the business and the business alone of education systems. But to borrow the old African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. So we have to give greater concerted thought and action in terms of whole child development, which means emotionally, spiritually, academically, physically, nutrition, social relationships – Allowing our kids to grow up in environments where there isn't all this overt and um, horrid racism. So we have to think about whole child development, which means investment early and earlier intervention and prevention. It's unlikely to change when all the initiatives are a kind of a response to suicide or or at the uh, 
or at the uh, the latter end, if you like, of that um, young person and their uh, degree of risk. We're not investing enough in our young people who are vulnerable, marginalised, and not well, not well in mind, as well as in terms of spirit and body. We've got to invest in those whole child development approaches. The other thing I would add is... Um, we need to give stronger thought to place-based interventions. Invest in communities um, and empower communities so they can get those wraparound services to those young people before that level of risk um, starts to escalate. Have you seen any good models of these sort of place-based initiatives, perhaps where communities are leading this kind of change themselves? Well, you've got Children's Ground um, in the Northern Territory, You've got models now starting to develop um, around place-based thinking and collective impact thinking. Collective impact models emerged out of the United States, out of Stanford, where you, you adopt a more holistic approach to a place as opposed to a programmatic uh, place. And this is one of the great failings, I think, of our current public policy outlook um, as it relates to First Nations Australia, this fixation on programs. Programs are a sure way to, uh, to grow silos. And that's one of the things that is literally killing us in terms of silos where services aren't integrated, uh, left and right aren't talking. So we've got to invest in uh, initiatives which um, bring about that collective impact. Um, there's the start of that type of thinking through the empowered communities model uh, the, that the Commonwealth is investing in. Um, we need more of it. Um, another model that's worth looking at is the Burke uh, Justice Reinvestment Strategy. So that's saying to governments, your incarceration of our young people is costing societies this. Let's take that cost and reinvest it into preventative measures so that, that societies aren't bearing that cost. Um, that's the sort of creative and lateral thinking that we need more of in, in the Indigenous affairs space. So let's just imagine for a second that Scott Morrison has listened to this podcast. I'm sure he does on a regular basis. But you've got his ear right oh, now. <laughs> you've got his ear right, yeah, right now. What three recommendations would you give to him? What three pieces of policy would you recommend that could change the face and change the nature of the challenges facing our Indigenous communities? My three recommendations would be back your Indigenous Australians Minister with all you've got, be courageous and bold in terms of advancing the Uluru Statement of the Heart. It is what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are seeking and as First Nations people that request ought to be honoured and respected. And the third is don't be scared to reimagine the kind of policy approaches to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. I think there's this kind of orthodoxy which, you know, so little, there's a, there's a, a lack of innovation and kind of reformist zeal and 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 the same ingredients keep going in and they are expecting a different cake to come out and we hear... We hear every year through the Prime Minister's closing in the Gap report just how um, um, kind of underwhelming 
progress is. Um, we shouldn't be waiting decades upon decades upon decades to see um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people enjoying um, um, uh, the same human rights as all other Australians, the same sort of opportunities, be it in education, employment, business, etc. And um, finally, that um, we get our national story right. We haven't had um, the true kind of national story prevail. Now, I'm an optimist, and I have seen since my days at school um, going back, I'm pleased to see what my children are learning that that I never did. You know, for us, it was kind of Captain Cook and Arthur Phillip and the great landings and the great um, kind of achievements and progress made. Now, for some people, that remains their belief and um, through their eyes, they see, you know, Cook and Philip as kind of um, uh, people who made significant achievements. Um, but we know there's this other story and this other story is a part of the shared story. Let's not hide it away anymore and we'll need the Prime Minister to kind of and other leaders to uh, lead that dialogue which is respectful and most importantly truthful. You said you're an optimist there, Tony. Are you hopeful that that can happen? We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I certainly as a, a scholar and um, a First Nations person, someone who's been in the policy sector for many years, um, nearing three decades now, um, I'll, I'll say this. Um, if the government is keen to pursue a bold and positive agenda, then certainly caper. We'll um, give them every assistance they need. Tony, thank you so much for sharing your insights and expertise today. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back and thank you once again to Tony Dreis for his time. I really enjoyed that discussion. I got a lot out of it. What about you, Sharon? What did you take from that? Yeah, I think that was it was such an interesting discussion and, and well done, Martin. That was a really great interview. I, I enjoyed it. Look, there was so much... Um, in that interview, I guess, I mean, I because I work on children's policy, I guess that's always the perspective that I'm thinking about things from. And there was a moment where Tony was talking about um, the experience of the stolen generations, how that's intergenerational, um, and the problems that children and young people face today, Indigenous children and young people face today. And he just made this comment about the horrible racism that children and indeed Indigenous people, regardless of age, face. And that comment in his interviews just struck at my heart, really. I mean, it's just shocking to think the way in which Indigenous people face racism on a day-to-day -day basis and the way that permeates everything from the way we address policy through to people's 
day-to-day experiences of life. And I think that is something that we simply have to address in this country. Um, and perhaps the voice to parliament, you know, taking seriously uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is, is the way to begin that. Tony also made the point that it's going to take political leadership, and I think that is just essential. You know, we, we have our first Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Affairs, which is is a start. But I think it's like gender issues where women shouldn't be responsible for fixing the structural issues that create gender-based inequality. Mm. Um, Indigenous people can't be expected to fix the problems that have been created in, as Tony called a post-colonial Australia. So I think this is something where we, 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 each and every one of us, have to accept responsibility and we have to demand leadership from our political leaders. Yeah, quite right. I'm interested in what you said there about uh, racism directed towards children. I mean, you do a lot of work on children's policy. What kind of impact does that kind of attitude have on children. I mean, it's tough and it must be tough enough on adults, but to hear that kind of racism directed to you as a child, it must be terrible to have to have to live with. Yeah, I think it's it's a devastating impact. And there's been an enormous amount of research that demonstrates um the impact of, of racism. You know, Naomi Priest here at ANU has, has done a lot of that work. Um, I've done a lot of work with, with children, um, not specifically with Indigenous children, but in the research that we've done with children, asking them about what matters in terms of them feeling supported in their communities, one of the themes that comes up again and again is the importance of relationships, you know, within family, but more broadly. And children talk about how they feel, how they value themselves or not, depending on the way that other people treat them, their neighbours, the shopkeepers, the bus drivers. And so for Indigenous children, when they're facing this this this, um, this sense of being excluded, this sense of being judged, and facing racism on a day-to-day basis, it has a continually erosive effect. Mm. And I think that impacts on children's relationships across all of their life. So it's it's devastating. Mm. Yeah, very good points and many thanks for that, Sharon. So, uh, listeners, we are really keen to hear your thoughts about the discussion we had with Tony. Do get in contact with us. You can reach us on Twitter where we're at Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net, or you can jump on the Facebook group and let us know what you think. We are Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. We'd love to see you there. I'm there. Yulia is there, and we're happy to engage in discussion and chat on there and get your thoughts. Now, at the end of each week's podcast we go over some of your questions and we go over some of your comments and suggestions for future pods so let's crack on with that and the first one i want to talk about is a piece which was published on our website policyforum.net it was called riding the rails to safety it was written by cameron gordon and in it cameron takes a look at canberra's new light rail transit system um, and says while it has many advantages regulators continue must continue to improve certain aspects of the system to maximise citizen safety. And there's a comment from uh, Roadrunners45 on Twitter who wrote, good article, zigzag crossings are getting more and more popular and make total sense. Also, getting in a car is one of the most dangerous things that people do. So the more we can get people into public transport, the better. Sharon, have you used Canberra's new light rail transit system yet? Martin, I am so glad you asked me this question. This vexes me. Now, I think the light rail is a great thing, actually, but it only goes north. 
I live in the South. <laughs> so I have not yet ridden it, but I'm looking forward to having a free weekend when I can ride out to Gungahlin and ride back again. That would be very exciting. But the new bus system is terrible for anyone that lives in the South. It's trying to direct everyone onto the light rail. But I don't live in the North and I'm not going to Gungahlin. It took me an hour and 45 minutes to get to work on the bus this morning. So that's an hour longer than it would normally take. It now takes my children an hour and a half to get home from school instead of the 25 minutes it used to take them. So yes, that was a great big bleat. But I think the light rail is a great thing. But for those of us who don't live between Civic and Gungahlin, we still need a good transport system. And the new um, timetables are just not doing it. And I, I think that Roadrunner or Roadrunners 45, is right about the importance of public transport. But if it takes people so much longer to go on public transport than it used to, then they're going to start to think about using cars instead of public transport. I Part feel fits purpose. I, I, look, I hear your complaint, Sharon. I feel <laughs> we're getting fairly kind of micro in our, in our analysis here. But even while you were saying it, producer Yulia was nodding along <laughs> in agreement about your points about just how appalling Canberra's bus system is now. It was very micro. And so for anyone that lives outside of Canberra, that was a very tedious moment. But I think it speaks to the importance of well-designed public transport. Coming to to you live from the Canberra transport bubble. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so the next one I want to talk about is a podcast which was called A Pacific Specific Approach to Regionalism with Meg Keane and Matt Dornan and Colin Takuitongi. Remember that one, Sharon? I do. It was a good one, wasn't it? Stellar lineup. Yeah. And in that episode, it was quite a while ago now, the panel discussed uh, regional cooperation amongst the Pacific Islands and the challenges that the Pacific Islands face in coordinating. Uh, policy efforts. And we had a comment from Liam Hughes on our podcast group. And Liam's been very active on the podcast group. It's been really nice chatting to him. And he wrote uh, I, about this podcast, I learned about a bunch of issues I hadn't considered, how much the Pacific relies on fishing as an industry, for instance. Some fantastic news about things like cooperation on tuna fishing means that the Pacific tuna industry is the best managed in the world and how those ideas can be applied to other issues like climate change. Super interesting. What do you think of that, Sharon? I think it's a great comment from from Liam. And I think one of the things that that panel did was to – I guess point to the the diversity of the Pacific, the cooperation that's happening there, but also the innovation that takes place. I think in Australia we often have um, a very narrow view of the Pacific, either either as a a tropical paradise where we go for holidays or perhaps some sense of it being threatened by climate change, which of course it is, um, or struggling with development. Whereas what this panel showed is, you know, the, the ways in which um, the Pacific Island nations are leading the world. And I think it's great to hear about that. Yeah, great. So many thanks for that, Liam. That's really appreciating. Really glad you enjoyed the podcast. All right. Now, in the introduction to this podcast, I flagged up that we had changed the rules about how you can get your hands on one of our exclusive Policy Forum pod, got 99 policy problems, but a brew ain't one mugs. And I would like to uh, pass that on to you now, how you can also get your hands on one of these mugs. As I said, there was a emergency session of the uh, Mug Prize Award Committee over the weekend. So how did that play out, Martin? Because I want to get my hands on one of these mugs. So 
How are you deciding who gets the mugs? Well, I, I should add, I've got one, but, you know, I'd like a collection. Well, you know, it's not my decision. This was obviously the committee's decision. So who's the committee? I do know I'm not on the committee myself, so do share who's on the committee. Well, you've already got a, you've already got a mug, so you, you would be a sort of vested interest. We can't, you know, put you on the, on the committee. The committee... I mean, I'd, I'd say I'd be a neutral party because I have a mug. <laughs> anyway, tell us who's on the committee. The committee is made up of uh, various Nobel Prize winners, some uh, world-leading experts on mug prize award distribution. Wow. And it's chaired by, uh, uh, diligently chaired by my dog, Archie. I can think of no better creature, actually, than Archie to chair the mug committees. He takes his responsibilities very, very seriously, I've got to say. That is very, very impressive. I should I should also just share with, with our listeners who are probably aware that you are a mad Crystal Palace fan. And I was rather worried that there would be a, a Crystal Palace logo somewhere on the mark. <laughs> I have checked it carefully. Underneath, inside, there is no sign of it. So, listeners, you can safely request a mark completely free of Crystal Palace paraphernalia. It is completely free, but you have also now given me a really good idea. So, I've, <laughs> Oh, no. Thank you for that, Sharon. Anyway, so... Uh, the committee has met. There are now two ways that you can get your hands on the, on the mug. So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to read this to you, the uh, view of the committee, and hopefully this makes sense. So first of all, the one way that you already know you can get your hands on one of these m- mugs is you suggest a topic for a podcast that subsequently gets made into one here on Policy Forum Pod. You already know that to do that. And the way to do that is on our Facebook group, obviously. But the new second way of doing that is uh, if you get five of your questions asked on our podcasts, uh, uh, then you can get your hands on one of these mugs. So if you get five questions asked on a podcast, you can get your hands on one of our policy forum pod mugs. Now, note here, we're not keeping track of how many questions you actually get asked because we're, you know, pretty forgetful. So here's how you do it. If you hear one of your questions asked on our podcasts, uh, and that means both Policy Forum Pod and Democracy Sausage because they quite frequently dip into the questions as well, then leave a comment under the post on the Facebook group telling us what number you're up to. Uh, and once you get to five, we will send you a mug. Now, no cheating. We'll know about it. We listen to these podcasts too. So if you hear your question read out on one of our podcasts in under, in the post on Facebook, write question one and hopefully question two and increasing levels of excitement as you get to question five. And once you get to question five, we will send you one of those mugs. Does that make sense to you, Sharon? That makes perfect sense. Well, hopefully that makes sense to our listeners as well. Now, uh, before we wrap up, I would like to do quick two things quickly. First of all, I'd like to welcome some uh, new members to our Facebook group. Hello to Prue Axum, Daniel Etienne, Michelle Wyatt, Isabella Sfinos, Tanem's Lounge, Nick Lindsley, Jack Evans, Mark Snow, Ignacio Santos, Dan Gregg, and James 
Bayless. Hello to all of you. And special thanks to Dan and ACO and James, who have all given us suggestions for future podcasts. Watch this space. Perhaps they might get made into episodes. Uh, Dan Gregg wrote that he'd like to hear something about LGBT issues. Inacio wrote that he would like to hear something about the sustainable economy. And James Bayless wrote that he would like to hear how does the Middle East and Africa fit into Australia's conception of the Asia Pacific. What do you think of those ideas, Sharon? Oh, fantastic ideas. So looking forward to the pods that come from them. Yeah, well, keep your eyes and ears peeled. Let's see if we do make those into future pods. The stakes Uh, are high for people now. The stakes are very high, yes. So um, if you would like to... Give us an idea for a future podcast. Jump onto the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. Uh, you can also hit, reach us on Twitter, where apps Policy Forum, or email us, podcast at policyforum.net. And I'd like to say huge thanks to everyone also who has uh, given us a review or rated us on iTunes. Please do that if you get the opportunity to do so. It'll only take 30 seconds or so, uh, and it'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce-Tirio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.